Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for giving us your word, the Bible. We pray this evening that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will enable us to understand what your word is saying and to put it into practice in our lives and in our church. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The, um, the sad fact is, churches are full of sinners. There are paedophiles in churches. There are people who steal from church accounts. There are adultery and marriage breakdown. People in churches use pornography. There are homosexuality and abortion in churches. There are gossip and slander. There are fights and divisions in churches. And that's just talking about the ministers. Uh, Once you start talking about everyone else, that's when it starts to get really bad. Uh, One of my college lecturers, one of my lecturers at college, used to say this. He said, never be surprised because one thing you will learn in ministry is that anyone is capable of anything. Don't be surprised. Anyone is capable of anything. Churches are full of sinners. And of course... If you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, you realise that that is entirely what we should expect. This is the trustworthy saying. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus said, I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners. You expect sinners in churches. In fact, it's the one qualification you need to be here. That's that's why we put our trust in Jesus, to have our sins forgiven. No reason to be here, no reason to trust him if you don't think you're a sinner. If you're not a sinner, you're in the wrong place. But But then church is supposed to be made up of saved sinners. The church is supposed to be made up of repentant sinners. As the Bible says, Jesus died to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. As Christians, God's given us his Holy Spirit and he calls us to live holy lives. And so historically, the church has taken action to help sinners to turn from sin and live godly lives. The church has exercised what what, what it's called discipline, church discipline. But but it's always been a problem. At some points in history, the problem has been the severity of church discipline. At some points, the church has tortured sinners. Um, Think of Spanish Inquisition, fear and surprise and fanatical devotion to the Pope. They, They tortured sinners in those days. At other times in church history, people have been burned at the stake. People have been drowned, imprisoned, beheaded. People have been hung, drawn and quartered. People have been excommunicated from the church and told never to return. Terribly severe stuff, all in the name of church discipline. But at other points, the problem has been a lack of discipline. That is certainly what you see today. The average person today would say, 
what right has the church got to tell me what to do? How dare they, pre- they presume to be able to discipline me? It's totally inappropriate. Didn't Jesus say, let him who has no sin cast the first stone? Didn't Jesus say, judge not lest you be judged? A bunch of holier-than-thou hypocrites reckoning they can tell me how to live my life. That's what people think. And so, for the most part, the church just keeps quiet. Churches today, for the most part, just let people do what they want and they say and do nothing. There is no church discipline. Church discipline. It's always been a problem. So um, so what role is there for church discipline? What, what, shall, what role should there be? Should there be any role? If, if, if it does have a place in a church, what, what place? How should it be done? Where should it be done? Why should discipline be exercised? What should we do about church discipline? Now, just before I go on, I'm getting the sense that this is really cutting in and out quite a lot. Is that, is that what everybody else is... No, you can hear me all right? Okay. All right, good. Okay, well, let, let's, let's have a look at the passage then. You may remember from last week the background to this passage in 2 Corinthians. Remember last week that, that, uh, that Paul had made a couple of changes of plans... I can kind of walk around with this microphone, can't I? Paul had made a couple of changes of plans. So he said to the Corinthians, I, I, I won't come and visit you until later on. I don't want to make a short visit. Um, but then he changed his mind and he did visit them. And then, and then later on he said, when he was there, he said, well, I'll tell you what, all kinds of problems here. I'll visit you twice, on the way to Macedonia and on the way back again. But then he didn't visit them on the way to Macedonia. He sent a letter instead. He's changed plans a couple of times and the allegation has been made that Paul can't be trusted. He says one thing, but then he does another thing. A very serious accusation. And last week we saw Paul vigorously defend his integrity. He said, look, my conscience is clear. He said, my plans, they were made carefully and honestly. Yes, I did say I would visit you. I didn't visit you, but that was my honest intention at the time. It was a carefully developed plan. I was honest as I told you about my plans, just as I was honest when I told you the truth about Jesus. Truth that God has shown you was true by giving you the Holy Spirit. So Paul's defended his integrity. And now in chapter 1, verse 23, he's he's continuing the same vein of thought, but now he gives the actual reason why he didn't visit. And it's got to do, we're going to see, with this issue of church discipline. Uh, Paul says, chapter 1, verse 23, that he didn't visit so as to spare the Corinthians. That is to spare them from discipline. Look with me. 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Tom, chapter 1, verse 23. I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Uh, Paul then talks about what, what, his, what his role is. He says, it's not my job to lord it over your faith. He says, I'm the apostle, the traveling evangelist. My job is to work with people for their joy. My job is to share with them how they can have a faith by which they can stand firm before God on judgment day. He's the evangelist. Not his job to be lording it over people's faith. So verse 24, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it's by faith you stand firm. Paul's job, evangelize, share the great news. Through Jesus, through faith in him, you can stand firm before God on judgment day to give people that joy, work with them for joy. But Paul's previous visit to Corinth had not been a joyful one at all. Paul's previous one had been a painful visit because he had had to exercise discipline in the church. 
He'd had to grieve the church. Paul says, not again. He says, I don't want to do that again. I, I, I don't want to be grieving churches. I want the joy of seeing you transformed by the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 1. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? You see, it's, it's not really Paul's role as the travelling evangelist to be doing the church discipline. His role, travel around and evangelise. And so he doesn't want to make another painful disciplinary visit to Corinth. And so instead, what Paul did, he wrote a letter. And uh, the reason Paul wrote this letter, it was to get the church to sort out their discipline problem themselves. To, to, to stand up as a mature church, to, to catch the ball and sort it out on their own. And that way, he says, when I do come to visit you, I'm not going to be distressed by, by people who ought, to be, who ought to be making me rejoice because you'll have sorted it out for yourselves. Verse 3. I wrote as I did so that when I came, I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. And Paul says he wrote with confidence. He was confident they would be able to sort things out for themselves. He was confident that when he came, that he and they would share together in the joy of the church having fixed up its own problem. Halfway through verse 3, I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. Paul was confident it would end up with joy. And so he says, even though it was a tough letter to write, I wasn't writing it to grieve you, but as an expression of my love to you. Verse 4. For I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. All right, so Paul didn't visit because he didn't want to have to come and exercise church discipline again. That wasn't his role as an apostle. Instead, he sent this letter to the church to help them sort their discipline issue out themselves. And that way, when he did come, both he and the church would have the joy of knowing not only that the problem had been sorted out, but that they had, had grown up and had, had caught the ball and had sorted it out for themselves. You, you can see the wisdom of what Paul's doing here, can't you? It is good management principle, apart from anything else. You give people appropriate areas of responsibility and then you stand back and let them do the job. You let people grow up. If you keep sticking your nose in, they'll never learn to do it themselves. There's nothing I hate more than someone who gives me a job and then keeps on telling me how to do it all the time because I'm not doing it the way they wanted it done. If you give me the job, let me do the job, all right? Stand back. If you keep looking over people's shoulder, they'll never get any confidence. That is, that's something, by the way, that Western missionaries have learned the hard way. Historically, what, what too many Western missionaries did, they would go to places, they would plant churches... But then out of some kind of paternalism or perhaps even a racism, they would then hang around as sort of the great white saviour to fix up all of the problems that came up. They'd keep sticking their noses in and so they created churches that were dependent. What they should have done and what uh, Western missionaries now do far better was, was go in, train people up and then step back and let the indigenous church manage itself perhaps offer some consultancy or something, but, but, but let them grow up, let them be mature, let them, let them become a mature Christian church in their own right. This was a wise thing that Paul did. And in the next verses we see that it worked. 
the church did in fact exercise discipline on a person. And Paul says, great job, now it's enough. Time to, time to forgive. Now, verse 5, first of all, you can see that part of what this person had done had been against Paul himself. Uh, we don't know exactly what it was, but, but somehow it had grieved Paul. But Paul says that's not, that's not a big deal. The real problem is the effect that this guy had on the church as a whole. Verse 5. If anyone has caused grief, he's not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. This man did cause grief, but Paul goes on to say the matter's now dealt with and it's time now for you to forgive him, to to reaffirm your love for him. Verse 6. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he'll not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Now, Paul says, I wrote to see if he'd obey me, to see if you would exercise the church discipline that I said, uh, to see if you are still under my apostleship, verse 9. The reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. But now he says, you've, you've, you've done it. You've stood the test. You've passed. Well done, flying colours. You've proved you're under my apostleship. You've exercised the discipline that I told you to. Now it's time to forgive And he says, you mustn't let it linger on anymore because that will then play into Satan's hands. Um, It'll play into Satan's hands because then you have someone who remains unforgiven, which is, of course, exactly what Satan wants. And it'll play into Satan's hands because the the church will be divided and the church will will continue to have pain and, and unforgiveness. He says, we know what the devil's on about. Time to bring it to an end. Verse 10. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Now, if you think about it, there is, uh, there's plenty that we don't know about this little episode of discipline. It's quite tantalising, because we don't know... Um, We don't know who this bloke was. We don't know what he did. We don't know what the punishment was that the majority exercised. It's all a mystery. Paul knew and and the Corinthians knew. That's why it didn't have to be part of the correspondence. But we we don't know. But there are some some things here that are clear. Firstly, it is clear that the man had caused grief to both Paul and the church. Second, it's clear that in obedience to Paul's letter, the church had punished him in some way. And thirdly, it's clear that that this had the desired effect. It was sufficient. And so now it was time to bring it to an end. Forgive the bloke, reaffirm their love for him. Now, in in terms of how this fits into the, the, the flow of Paul's argument, remember what Paul's doing, he's defending his integrity, defending his trustworthiness. You can see again how trustworthy Paul has been. Um, He didn't visit as he said he would. Instead, he sent his letter. But it's actually proved to be the best thing he could have done. It's meant that the church has had to catch the ball and exercise its own discipline. Paul has acted not only with integrity here, he's acted with great wisdom here. He's done the best thing for the church. And they themselves can see it because they've, they've, they've exercised their own discipline. They've grown up, stood in their own feet. The last little bit in verses 12 to 13, 
Um, doesn't sound like it's on the same topic, and, and you'll see it's under a different heading in the NIV, but I think it is under the same topic. And although you may not get it immediately, the clue is to realise that Titus is the person that Paul sent with the letter to the Corinthians. If you get that little point, suddenly this will make sense. Titus was the person that Paul sent with the letter to the Corinthians. Because if you look at what he says now, he says, look, I trekked around, but I was so stressed because I didn't see Titus. I, I was so concerned, I couldn't settle down. Why couldn't he settle down? Because he didn't know how they'd responded to his letter. He cared about them so much. Verse 12. Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there with news of how he'd responded to the letter. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. Again, in the flow of Paul's argument, it helps us to see his trustworthiness. He didn't visit Corinth, but it wasn't because he didn't care. Too, too many negatives? He did care. He did care. He cared passionately about them. He couldn't wait to see what effect his letter had had on them. He was, he was hanging on the edge of his seat, waiting to know what would happen to this church. Okay, can you see where we've been today? Um, Paul didn't visit Corinth, as he said he would because he didn't want to have to exercise discipline there again. Instead, he wrote to them to get them to exercise discipline themselves. And uh, eventually, after hanging on the edge of his seat for a while, he eventually found out to his great delight they did what he said. It worked. And now he says, time to forgive. Okay, well, um, what about then application to us? As we saw last week, the most direct application of this passage for us is what it teaches us about Paul. Paul is establishing here for the Corinthians the fact that they can trust him. He didn't change his plans on a whim. He didn't say yes when he meant no. He didn't change his plans out of a lack of integrity or honestly. Paul carefully planned and replanned his movements according to what he thought was best for the churches. Paul came to the careful conclusion it was better to send a letter than visit and as it turned out, that was exactly the right decision to make. We need to be perfectly clear on this because as we saw last week, there are all kinds of people out there who will tell you not to trust Paul. They'll say things like, oh, that's just what Paul said, it's not what Jesus said. That's just that, uh, that, that woman hater, Paul. That's just that, 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 that homophobe, Paul. There are lots of people out there who will say, don't trust Paul. But we've got to be clear on this. The Apostle Paul, the, the, the man who wrote many of our letters in the New Testament, he is a faithful and a trustworthy author. He taught the truth about Jesus and he acted with an integrity and a passionate concern for the good of the church. Paul is someone you can trust. And so we should listen very carefully to what he says. Like the Corinthians... We should obey him as God's authorised messenger. That's, that's the direct message of this section to us. But I also think that this passage gives us some fascinating little insights into th this issue of church discipline. It doesn't answer all our questions, quite tantalising, but it does give us some very helpful pointers and I think some very good um, guidelines to help us 
from error. Help us to, uh, not, not, to, not to fall into error. On your outline there, I've listed, I've tried to list some of what uh, I think we can learn from this passage. You can see the first heading there. Uh, the first thing there is, is um, church discipline should happen. So here's why I'm thinking it. The Corinthian church here, in obedience to the Apostle Paul, disciplined someone. They, they exercised church discipline. I think it's the same for us. There is a valid place for church discipline in biblical churches. In fact, more than that, there is a necessary place for church discipline in biblical churches. If churches want to obey the Bible, then they need to have some way of discouraging their members from error and sin. I know that's not a popular view of church in our culture, but that's the way it is in the Bible. Now, second point is this. Church discipline should happen locally. That's why Paul wrote instead of visiting, to get the local church to discipline its own members. It's part of, part of growing up and being a mature church. It's not up to some travelling evangelist or missionary to bring discipline to a church. It's not up to some bishop from somewhere. Discipline should happen within the context of the local church family, within the context of local church leadership. I take it. Let me start being offensive and personal now. I take it that if you come to this church, you come to be encouraged and helped as a Christian. I take it you don't come just to have itchy ears scratched. I take it you come to be encouraged and helped as a Christian. And I take it that you are looking to me and perhaps to my wife and to Warren and to, to our elders here to help you in that. And so... As arrogant as it may sound, I assume that we have permission to meddle in your life. More than that, I think it's our responsibility to stick our noses into your lives. It's not up to someone out there. It's up to us, here, locally. If you are living in a way that clearly contradicts what the Bible teaches, then I take it we need to help you to deal with that. And so, if we find out that you are living in a way that clearly contradicts what the Bible teaches, then, then Warren or, or, or Carmelina or your elder or I will, will, will muster up our courage. We don't find it easy. It's not something we enjoy. We're just as much victims of our culture as anybody else. But we will, we will muster up our courage, grit our teeth, and we will ask to meet up with you. We'll listen to you. We'll listen to you. Tell us what's happening. We'll, we'll, we'll ask you questions. But we will also have our say. We're not just going to be facilitators of your self-actualization. We're not just going to help you find your own path. We will have our say. We will point out to you from the Bible what we think you are doing wrong. We will show you from the Bible what we think you need to do about it. And if you will allow us, we will work with you to help you sort it out. We don't have all the answers. I'm not standing up as, a, as somebody who has all the answers, but we will have a go. Because... Can you see? That's our job. Church discipline should happen. And it should happen 
locally in your church. Okay, if I haven't offended you enough yet, point number three should do it. Point number three, church discipline may need to happen publicly. In the passage today, we saw that there was a punishment inflicted on a wrongdoer by the majority of the church. How would you like to have been in that church meeting? In other words, the whole church, or or at least the majority of the church, was aware of this poor person's sin. And they all participated in the punishment. Now, I'm not saying that all church discipline should happen publicly. Far from it, God forbid, if we had to air all our dirty laundry in front of each other. In my judgment, in the vast majority of cases, discipline should happen privately. It should just be one-to-one. But there is some sin that needs to be dealt with publicly. Now, in my experience, as I've approached people individually to, to talk about a problem, I've had, well, frankly, mixed success. Um, some people, I don't think anybody has yet said thank you to me, but, um, but some people have, 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 have been repentant. They've said, yeah, okay, what you're saying is right, um, that the Bible is, is against what I'm doing here, I, I want to change. Some people have been repentant, that they've attempted to deal with the sin. Um, other people have been offended, told me to stick my nose right out of them and their, and their, of their lives and their problems, and they've left our church in disgust. It's happened on more than a few occasions. But in a couple of cases, people have they've refused to listen to me. They've said, none of your business, the way I behave, and yet they've wanted to stay in the church. And in those cases, I've gradually made the issue more public. That is, I've brought an elder or elders into the discussion. Uh, if that hasn't worked, then things can get even more public. I've had situations where I've felt it necessary to relieve people of certain responsibilities in the church. I've asked them to step down from doing something until they sort an issue out. Um, We also have in our church a a system of formal membership. It's called communicant membership. And it's been my practice to not offer communicant membership to people if they come to our church and they're living in obvious sin or unbelief. And within our system of membership, if there is a communicant member, like a proper voting member of our church, and they begin to live in in obvious sin and unbelief, then that becomes a matter for our elders. Our elders should deal with it. And if necessary, they need to remove people from communicant membership. Or it is even possible, in the case of sin that had a, a very public impact on the church, that we would need to deal with it at a church level, have a congregational meeting, Get a person up and and talk about what has happened, uh, just like they did at Corinth. Now, thankfully, uh, neither of these last two has happened in my time here. Um, God forbid that they do. But the fact remains, can you see, some discipline needs to happen publicly. Okay, fourth, I've put there the goal of church discipline. Church discipline has a clear goal in this passage, and that is the repentance and restoration of the offender. I reckon this is is critical. This is, uh, in fact, I would say this is the most vital thing to get from this passage. Church discipline has the same goal as everything else that we're trying to do at church. That is, it is meant to be building people up in their faith in Jesus. Church discipline is not about retribution. It's not about 
It's not about making an example of someone. It's not about us being a pure and holier than thou church. Church discipline is about us helping each other to actually live for Jesus, taking action, more than just words, taking action. It's not about power games. It's not about controlling people. The reason discipline should be exercised is to help people live for Jesus and we've got to keep that in mind. must keep it in mind Uh, because of this fifth heading. Fifth heading I've put there, some dangers of church discipline. Um, From 2 Corinthians we can see that Satan has his schemes and he will try to use church discipline. He'll try to use church discipline that's too strict. The devil wants people to remain unforgiven. The devil wants people to be be, um, not restored through discipline but but pushed to the point of despair by discipline. The the devil wants people leaving the church. The devil wants people to to abuse church discipline for their own ego trip or for their own agendas. The, The devil wants to divide churches. But like the Corinthians, we're aware of his schemes. And so we need to be very, very careful. We must not discipline in such a way as to overwhelm people. We must not discipline to further our own agendas. We mustn't discipline for any reason other than to help people be godly Christians. Now the final heading there is the end of church discipline. It's a pretty simple point, but I actually reckon it's got some pretty big implications. Here in Corinthians, Paul commands the end of the discipline. We don't know exactly what it was that they were doing, but he says whatever it was, stop it now. In other words, the discipline that they were exercising was, to make up a word, endable. It was reversible. My own view, based on this passage, is that this rules out all kinds of of different kinds of church discipline that have been tried. I think for a start, it it means that we should never close the church doors to anyone. Church is meant for sinners. You're a sinner, come and join us. Our goal is for people to repent and come into relationship with Jesus and his church. And I would never want to cut someone off from that by saying they're not welcome in church. I might remove someone from a position of ministry or responsibility, I might argue that someone's status as a communicant member could be in question, but I would never tell someone they are not welcome in church because the whole it's got to be endable. If they're gone, there's no way of ending it. And as obvious as it might sound, I certainly don't think that we should be using torture or stoning or imprisonment or burning at the stake as part of our church discipline. I don't think that we should do, as a, as a Korean church just over here in Chatswood did a few months ago, and beat somebody up because she wasn't showing up to church often enough. Um, apart from raising a few legal problems, these things don't, don't really leave people much chance to come back into fellowship, do they? Our aim is to bring church discipline to an end, and that end is forgiveness and restoration. And so that's got to guide the way we deal with it. All right, let's finish. Um, this passage doesn't answer all our questions about church discipline. And of course, it's not, not the only passage about church discipline in the Bible, but, but it is clear from this passage that church discipline is an appropriate biblical activity. Here at church, your godliness is our business. You want us to mind our own business, then we will deal with your godliness. 
That is, we will teach you, encourage you, help you, and it may also mean that we'll tell you stuff you don't want to hear. It may even mean that we'll rebuke you. It's just possible that we'll tell you that you're wrong. It's even possible that we'll tell you that what you are doing is inappropriate. Our godliness is your business. Church discipline is a valid part of biblical church life. But we've got to be so careful, don't we? We've got to be so careful. Because church discipline is not something to be exploited or abused. It must always be done only with, with the goal of helping people to live for Jesus, with the aim of, of restoration, so that we can, we can live together right and holy lives as God's forgiven, sinful, forgiven people. Well, let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you because out of your extraordinary love you have loved us even when we were sinners. Even when we were sinners deserving of your wrath, you gave Jesus to die on the cross and rise again from the dead so that we can be forgiven and welcomed as your children. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we might be gospel people and gospel churches who welcome and love sinners. But we thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, that you're a God who works in us by your Holy Spirit so that to, to, to transform us into people who live rightly, obediently to you. And we pray that in church we may find ways of being able to help each other to live as faithful, godly disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Please help us in this, we pray. We pray against the work of Satan who would, who would divide us and who would, uh, who would turn people away and who would, uh, who would uh, make us not be interested in each other's godliness. We pray that you'll help us to be aware of his schemes and to speak and discipline one another in ways that do build each other up in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Please empower us and give us wisdom in this by the power of your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.